Hi, I'm Leslie Maxey, and so glad to share the Olympic Mindset with you, brought to you by NAHD. I can feel it when I'm in the right place. Oftentimes, we go after something, and it turns out that it's about something else altogether. That was the thing that had me say, that's it. Excellence isn't an accident. Hello, and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 1, brought to you in association with NHT, the School Leaders Union. Thanks to our amazing guests, Devin Harris, Sophie McKinna, John Pett, Leonie Gherkin-Schofield, Derek Redmond, Uri Gavashian, Joseph Polifasakis, and this week's guest, the amazing Leslie Maxey. Leslie joins us today from her home in America. Leslie is a former US Olympian, an ESPN presenter, a former advisor to the Red Bull racing team, and a world record holder for over 30 years. I hope you enjoy episode 8, the season finale of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. With thanks to our season 1 partners, NEHT, Pearson, and Two Simple Software. Leslie Maxey, US Olympian, world record holder, ESPN presenter, and current owner of Maxi Media Group. Leslie, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for having me, Dominic. Leslie, thank you for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. As you know, this podcast is an opportunity for us to talk to Olympians and to find out a little about the mindset it takes to reach the top in sport. Is it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you really did get me there. I thought, I'm sure I told you. <laughs> So what does good leadership look like to you, Leslie? Mm, my idea of a good leader is someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously, <laughs> um, but someone who is willing to, as I say, put your butt on the line. You know, you have to be willing to make mistakes, willing to be vulnerable, willing to help people to see what's possible for themselves. I say, if you have the ability to hold people in their highest possibility and help them to see it for themselves, that's a good leader. That's a great definition. I love that. And actually, it's really interesting because in episode three of the Olympic Mindset podcast, we interviewed uh, John Pett, who's the performance director for the Modern Heptathlon, the former chief of British Paracycling. His episode is actually titled Empathy Driven Leadership because he talks a lot about showing vulnerability, showing empathy, showing your emotions, wearing your heart on your sleeve. And actually, it was probably one of our most divisive episodes and probably one of our most listened to as well. We've received a lot of feedback online, some saying this is great, it's amazing to hear that, others saying we don't want to see our leaders being too vulnerable, we need to see our leaders as this kind of almost stoic personality, their level, because ultimately you don't want to see your, your boss turning up to work saying I hate you lot, I hate my job every day. So, <laughs> so I guess the question to you is, 
in terms of vulnerability, is there a line that should be drawn? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I think of vulnerability, I don't necessarily think of, you know, somebody that's crying at the drop of a dime. You know, it is someone who has the ability and the desire to stay present, to be in the moment with you, to be willing to step out on the skinny branch and and help you to, to do that as well. And that can show up in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be, you know, vulnerable as in I'm, I'm weak, but vulnerable as in I may admit that I don't have the answer, but I'll help you find it. You know, so there's a lot of different ways that vulnerability shows up, but I believe that it it opens space, it creates space for people to embrace their own vulnerability, because at the end of the day, that's what makes us human, is our vulnerability and the fact that we are fallible and we do make mistakes. And, and we're in a society, I believe, or at least culturally in, in the U.S., where people are, it's frowned on making mistakes. And that's like the last thing you want to do is let somebody know that you don't have all the answers. <laughs> Anybody who thinks they have all the answers <laughs> has many other issues that they're dealing with. And so I believe that that vulnerability is an important thing and, and that it is um, held in a way that that inspires people. Leslie, that's really interesting to hear. I think in Britain, we're definitely getting better at this, at this ability to not fear failure. A big part of the vulnerability that you've touched on there is expressing when you don't know everything. So after showing vulnerability, what would you say is the next key ingredient for managing your team? You got to have the right people in the right roles. Someone can be brilliant in one area. And if you have them, they're, they're brilliant in area A and you have them in area D, you're, you're almost setting them up for failure. So the evaluative process is super important to make sure that you have people, you know, not only can they do the job, but can you stand them while they do the job? Somebody may be really, really skilled and, you know, and very focused and, and have this incredible background but they're an absolute and utter jerk. Do you want that person? Do you want that as part of your culture? I don't think so. You know, I, I try and create a culture that is, um, that is, is something that's going to encourage and it's going to, to cultivate and bring forth the best of what people have to offer. And it starts by putting them in the right roles. I think this is a really interesting area we're stepping into now, Leslie, this idea that we don't want jerks or negative influences in our team. I think this is something or an area that can really be misunderstood at times, because in my experience, it can be equally dangerous to surround yourself with people that tell you everything you want to hear all the time, as it can be to surround yourself with negative influences that drag the rest of the team down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, having a bunch of yes men and yes women, yes people around you will set you up, I think, for the, the ultimate fall, because you've got to have, I mean, I, I think about my, my team of girlfriends. I have some incredible women around me. Um, and it, it, you can't be my friend if you can't say, you know, Leslie, you have stepped in it, but good. If you can't say that to me, then, you know, we're really not as close as I thought we were. Now, it's not saying it in, you know, um, a spiteful way or saying it viciously or anything like that. Everything can be delivered with compassion and love. Um, but be, being honest is, that's the first and foremost thing. And, and allowing people to have a voice. If I hire an operations person, I'm not an ops person. I know that well and good. So I hire you because you are the best and the brightest that I could find 
and sometimes a forward <laughs> um, <laughs> for, for that position. And I, I need for you to speak truth to power, but that starts with me. As the head goes, so goes the body. That's a biblical principle principle. And if you think about it, what's going on in the head of most organizations is going on, it's permeating the entire organization. There are very few places where you're going to not be touched if the head is doing X, Y, or Z. And so it is, it's important as a leader to be very clear about the culture you're setting and the culture you desire to set. Because culture trumps strategy every day of the week. You can have strategy of the wazoo, but if your culture isn't as such that will provide space for people to do what they've been called to do, to do what you've hired them to do, and to do what you've empowered them to do, you will never be able to implement that strategy. It will always, always fall flat. Mm -hmm. I love that Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Obviously, we all know strategy is important, but essentially, if the culture isn't right, then strategy equates to nothing. In your experience, Leslie, of working with Fortune 500 companies and lots of really high level organizations, when you've seen culture going wrong, what is the role of the leader and how can they best deal with those kind of issues that arise within a culture that isn't quite right? You're going to get a rotten apple in every now and then. That is, that's just life, statistically speaking. You know, you have the bell curve, plus or minus 6% on either side, those outliers. So you're always going to have somebody that makes their way through. But if you have a culture that is thus and so, that person is going to stick out like a sore thumb and they're only going to be able to do what they're doing for so long and and the evaluation so that you're not going years and years without sitting down with somebody and figuring out where are you thriving so that I can really encourage you because that's an important part of leadership. Where are you struggling so that I can either get support for you or are you actually happy here? This may not be a good fit. You know, all money is not good money. And just because somebody is making money in a position or bringing something to a situation, doesn't mean it's the right fit. So it's being in the conversation, but that starts with culture. So if you have a leader that's very closed and you know I'm gonna hold everything close to the vest and almost like competitive, like you're looking at your employees as if, well, they're gonna come after my job someday. I hope they do come after my job someday because that means that I have built a strong leader. For me, joining NAHT was about finding people that I could speak to, like-minded people. So it's more about building a, a, a support network because in our role as head teachers, it's often quite a lonely place to be within our schools. We're often the person that everybody comes to, but very often we have nowhere to go. You know, if, if we've got a problem or a concern or a worry, it's difficult for us to go to our staff with that because... We're often seen as that person that needs to be in control and knows what's going on and you want to project yourself as that person that uh, understands and can cope with all of that. But I found NHT just that place that I can go to if I've got a problem or a, a query or I'm not sure about something. There's always been somebody there that I can I can ask and, you know, they understand what that's like. NAHT is here to defend and promote the rights of all school leaders. So together, we can create a better education system for educationalists and learners alike. For more information, email us at joinus at naht.org.uk or call us on 0300 30 30 333.
So taking this back to sport for a second, you were a 400 meter hurdler who held a world record for over 30 years. I think you set that record at the age of 16. So talk us through that, Leslie. How did it feel to go on to represent your country and hold a world record for so many years, setting it at such an early age? You know, it's it's crazy, Dominic. Um, I didn't even know that a junior world record was a thing. I didn't know. <laughs> and and that particular day, um, we I had started running the 400 hurdles that year. Um, my coach, Mr. Parker, God rest his soul, um, he he said, you know, you are a really good hundred meter hurdler, but my legs are actually too long. So I, you know, I do this little chop step in between because my legs are so long. I have like a 35 inch inseam. And so, you know, I was a good hundred meter hurdler. I was a better 400 runner, but I'm fast. I'm not quick. And, and, you know, 400 is a sprint. And so he said, if we combine these two events, the chances that we could really have some success go up exponentially. And, uh, and so that's what we did that late, late uh, winter, early spring. It's when I started running the 400 hurdles and Mr. Parker had a he had a hit list. So every week there was supposed to be a time that I would master, a skill that I would master and a person that I would beat. And so he'd say, okay, based on this, and you know, he had quadratic angles and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and every week there was a, a pro progression to be made. And so um, leading into the U.S. Nationals, um, there were, it was a good chance that I would make it into the finals. He certainly had no idea that I would perform the way that I did. I had no idea that I would perform the way that I did. Um, but it, it really was kind of the, the perfect mix of my, the speed that I did have, the length of my stride, the fact that I was a left leg predominant um, lead leg person, which from a when you're at centripetal force, so when you're coming around a curve, if you have a left leg, you can actually point towards the left side of the hurdle, which um, gravity works in your favor, as opposed to a right leg, because it literally pulls you out and you have to come back in. So all of these things worked in my favor, and they just came together in that race. And so um, I don't even remember everybody that was in that race. Judy Brown King, now Judy Brown Clark, um, won the race. And she was maybe 26 at the time or so. And, um, and she got the American record. And I got second and got the junior world record. And then some iteration of that record stood for the you know, 32, 35 years, whatever it was. But it was like a junior world record, a world youth record, and a national high school record. And I think... The last, the last iteration of that was um, achieved or bested by Sydney McLaughlin in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and yeah, so she took that last record. But hey, it couldn't have gone to a better person. Hello, yes. <laughs> she has revolutionized the event. So <laughs> it is. Uh, it's good to see how far things have come. That's an amazing story, and to think you broke that record so early on as well in your career. Throughout this season, one of the common themes that keeps getting raised is nature versus nurture. So what we've started to look at with our athletes and with our guests is the impact that your family has had on you and on your career. So would you say that the household and the way that you were brought up contributed heavily 
towards the success you had or was it something that was just born of natural talent <laughs> um we had a, a fairly sporty family i like that i feel like sporty spice uh, we had a pretty sporty family um one of my cousins brooke gaston was among the first title nine recipients at cal berkeley um, my cousin marion bowton uh, was really the reason why i said i could go to the olympic games it was i think it was 10 years old and she had made her first junior team. Now, you couldn't have told me it wasn't the Olympic Games because she came back from Europe and she had this beautiful red, white and blue sweatsuit. And she came from the airport to our um, AAU nationals. And I was 10 years old, but running nine and under because of when my birthday hit. And we, um, we got a, a world record. We got a national record in the four, four by 400 relay. And I, you know, I ran anchor and caught the girl on the last turn, the whole nine yards. And I came across the, the finish line and, you know, kind of celebrated with my family. And then I laid out on the track because I was so tired. And she came over and she took her sweatshirt off and she kind of tossed it on me. And she said, one day you'll earn your own. That was all I needed to know. I was like, oh, I'm going to the Olympics. <laughs> that day and the funny thing Dominic is that we actually have pictures of that day that race the whole nine yards and I can tell you exactly what I was thinking but the reason why I I tell this story is because kids have a vision for their lives I had a vision for my life from about five or six years old I was very very clear that there were things that I could do in this life and, and as things were revealed to me, because like I started in television about the same time I started in sports. I started running when I was six. I started in television when I was nine, but I started modeling when I was like five or six. And, and I saw this show when I was nine called Kids Watch. And, and my mom used to call me Newsy instead of nosy, which is a little more encouraging. You're being Newsy. Um, and, and I saw this show and I'm telling you, I saw myself in that television i was like that was built for me how do i how do i get my part of this <laughs> and you know made some calls and figured it out um but i i like to especially for for parents of of young kids you know it's it's more what we do than what we say kids watch what what we're doing and they will emulate everything top to bottom. And, and so, you know, how we're living, how we're showing up in the world really impacts them. That and who they are naturally, you know, you have two going on three children and I promise you, they are three of the most different people you could ever cast. And, and there is something in the Bible that says, you know, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, you know, for people that aren't Christian or aren't, aren't religious or whatever, um, I just look at it like this. We all come here with something, something that's not firing on all cylinders, something that is a challenge for us, something that, that, you know, makes us sweat at night when we think about it. And, and it's our role to work on that. However, we exist in relationships. We're, we're supposed to be here helping one another because you could share something with me, Dominic. And, and I say, oh my God, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. You're like, I've been waiting for that solution and vice versa. And I'm like, oh my God, Dominic, you're so smart. But it's because you're not in the middle of that thing. 
You know, so everybody has that thing that they're working on. Your kids have it. My kids have it. My kids are grown and, and I can see the progression of the thing that they're working on. But when you, when you are, are raised in a family where people have one, have your back and two, help you to understand that that time when you feel other or you feel different, everybody feels other and different at some point in their lives. That's amazing to hear the, the story of how you were raised, Leslie. And as you've already mentioned, I do have two children, two daughters and a third on the way. Definitely the lessons I've learned from season one of this podcast is that probably the greatest gift I can give to my children or to help my children develop is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy, according to Bandura, refers to the set of beliefs that we hold about our ability to complete a particular task. In other words, our ability to achieve a goal or complete a task depends firmly on whether we think we can do it and whether we think it will have a good result or a positive outcome. So just to touch on the evidence we've seen there of you developing self-efficacy from your upbringing, self-efficacy is informed by several main sources of information being um, personal experience, observation, persuasion, and emotion. So personal experience being, have you done this before? Have you experienced success in this previously? The next one is observation. So observation being, you know, role models or seeing other people complete a, a similar task. So for example, for me, if I've got another colleague that is maybe a bit of a couch potato and doesn't like to get up and do too much, and then all of a sudden they've done a couch to 5K run, I'm thinking, right, I can definitely do that. And that leads into the next one, which is persuasion. Mm -hmm. Other people increasing our self-efficacy by offering support and encouragement. And the final one is emotion. That's the, you know, that's the feeling that we get from doing something. It can be a physiological response, whether that be anxiety for a big thing or maybe a really positive response that we get. I've got a great friend, Dr. Nick Hooper. Um, he wrote a book recently called The Unbreakable Student, and that book explores six key evidence-based well-being rules. So if you're really interested in a theoretical approach to developing your well-being, then please go buy that book, Dr. Nick Hooper, The Unbreakable Student. The reason I raise Nick is because he's going to listen to everything I just said and absolutely hammer me for getting it wrong, probably. So I apologize, <laughs> Nick. I did my best. But, you know, that's my understanding of self-efficacy, and that's how I'm taking that into my life. And that's kind of the lessons I've taken from listening to you, Leslie. Can I add something to that, especially to the, the physiological side of it? Your gut, your gut instinct there. Cause what I described to you about the vision that I have had for my life is, is much of it is, is the gut and, and it has a physical tangible thing to it. You know, if, if I'm messing up, like the hairs on the back of my neck, if I'm being that person that is not in, in a mindset of service, so to speak, um, if I'm not serving the situation, the hairs on the back of my, my neck stand up, I get to pay attention to that because that's telling me, Leslie, take a step back and, and really evaluate what your intentions are and, and how you're coming at this. And then when I see something or, or I have a vision for something to, it is, it's almost visceral and it's definitely physical. It's physiological. I can feel it when I'm in the right place. And like you, many, many families and I, my family did this too. Oh, go give uncle so-and-so a hug. And you're like, mm. <laughs> and you're like, don't be rude. No, if that kid doesn't want to give that, that old man a hug or whoever, don't make them. 
Because when you make them, you tell them my physiological feeling around this doesn't matter. And so when they have that feeling again later on in life, they're like, oh, I was told I was taught not to honor that. Do you think that's important for women? More important for women? Absolutely. Well, it's not any more important for women. It probably is something that we get to easier just culturally because we're, you know, we're taught to be more reflective and blah, 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 blah. But I actually think it is equally as important to men. It's important because if a man can be attuned to his emotions, do you know what mastery of your emotions can do what will show up in your life? And I'm not talking about controlling your emotions. I'm talking about being in touch with your emotion. Because if you're in touch with your emotions and you have an awareness, awareness is the first step to any kind of mastery. And so if you have an awareness of your emotions, especially for men, because they're taught not to be a big be a big boy, be a young man, you know, don't cry, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can speak for American society, but I don't think it's too different in the UK. No, no, it's still a bit of a problem in the UK. I think we're coming away from that. And it's definitely in the last five years, particularly become more acceptable to talk about feelings and emotions as a man. And all these old expressions of man up and, and that type of thing seem to be diminishing year on year, which is a great thing. And think about what you're trying to create for your little baby boy. Mm. You know, you want him to come into a space that allows him to be as connected to his emotions as your daughters, you know, and you get to create that. At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. So Leslie, on the subject of sharing how we feel about things, um, obviously you competed in the Olympics at only one Olympic event. So talk us through what happened there and why did you step away after just one Olympic cycle? Yeah, so I, I guess a couple different things. Um, I ruptured my patella tendon when I was 31 years old and 42, I think. And the first time I ruptured it, when the doctor went in to repair it, he said, hmm, did you ever have something happen to your knee and it was never the same? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I used to be a six foot high jumper. And one day in practice, I you know, went to plant and just, you know, kind of crumpled. And from that day forward, I had knee problems. But when the doctor went to repair it, what he saw was where it had healed. And then there was the fresh um, tear that made the rupture. Yeah. And he said, look, he said, you ran on half a patella tendon from 15 years old on, uh, because it, it was very much torn. And, and you know, I just, it just my, my legs held it together. So I say that to say this, um, I was in, I, you know, I was in pain 
pretty much on a daily basis. I was the ice bath girl. <laughs> I would just get into the ice bath. It was necessity as a mother of invention. Um, so, so yeah, so I was the ice girl. Um, and, and then after I graduated from, you know, from college, there was a couple things that happened in college that really did take a, an, a mental and emotional toll on me. And, uh, and so I said, you know, I wanted to get into the best shape of my life. And, and if I got to the point where I still wasn't enjoying it, because about the, I'm going to back up a little bit about the same time that I made that decision that I was going to be an Olympian. Um, I had been at a track meet and this athlete that I really, really liked and, you know, had always gotten his autograph and everything. Why you get somebody's autograph over and over again? I don't know, but really like this guy. And one day he like really didn't run well. And we all, came clamoring for the autographs that we got every year at this track meet and he was like oh, go away kid you bother me and you know and I remember saying if I get to the point where I'm not enjoying it anymore I'm not going to do it into the best shape of my life and then if I still am not enjoying it I'm out and uh, and so that's what I did I got into the best shape of my life I mean I was like ripped and I just was like I'm not enjoying it anymore so that was, that was the thing that had me say, that's it. And the one thing that I did know from having started in, in track and modeling about the same time in television shortly after that was that God had given me a lot of gifts, gifts and talents. And I didn't have to beat my head up against the wall doing something that I didn't enjoy when there was something else around the corner that I could love. Absolutely. And when we lose our passion for a situation, it's perfectly healthy to start to reflect and think, is this the right situation for me to be in? You've done that. You've gone through that cycle of emotion. And the next chapter for Leslie is a step back into the world of media. Now, I know lots of people listening to this might be thinking of a career move or the next step in their journey. So please talk me through how you transitioned from being an athlete, a college student back into the world of media and talk me through the steps that you took. And how did that come about? When I was, my kids were two and four years old and um, my ex-husband played baseball and we retired about the same time. And then he started coaching uh, in the managerial ranks for the Oakland A's. And he was a triple A coach, which allowed us to still be in California. And when he was elevated to double A, uh, that team was in Huntsville, Alabama. And so we were going to move to Huntsville, Alabama for a six month period of time. And I couldn't do what I was doing. I was working in marketing and PR um, at a boutique agency in California, and I couldn't do that. So I said, well, let me do an internship. I was 31 years old. <laughs> I was like, let me do an internship and see if I like television as much as I did when I was a kid. So I you know, called around. I ended up having to like take a, some kind of um, self-directed course at the local um, Alabama college so that I could um, qualify for the internship. But I mean, it was like, I had, they gave me a camera. They were like, here's how you turn it on, focus it, white balance, <laughs> take it out to your husband's game. <laughs> and I learned to shoot, edit, write, report. And, um, and you know, very quickly kind of rose to the ranks and, and got the eye of a vice president down in Los Angeles at Fox Sports Net when they started their regions. And, uh, and so I, I got my first national gig shortly after coming back to television, maybe 24 months or so. And, uh, and I was working in LA. And so we, I, I was traveling back and forth for a while. And then finally, we decided to move down there. And I worked with Fox Sports Net for probably five years. 
And then um, I got picked up by ESPN, came to the East Coast with a show that was going to be in Manhattan uh, called Cold Pizza. And they got like three years into it. And they're like, wow, this is really expensive in Manhattan, I think. <laughs> and they moved the show up to Bristol. And um, but I had really never thought I would work for ESPN because I didn't want to raise my family in Bristol. Nothing wrong with Bristol. I just didn't you know, see that for them. And, uh, and so I stayed and, and turned ESPN from an employer into a, a contract. And I became a, a contractor for them. And they were my first big account. And then my second big, big account was on a, on a job, I met the owner of Red Bull. And through that chance meeting came the opportunity to work for uh, Red Bull Team Racing, the F1 team, right? Yeah. How did that come about? What was the journey there? Because this is an amazing opportunity and something I wanted to dig into a little. How did this opportunity present itself and how did you grab it with both hands? When I, when I, when I first was recruited by him to do this, it was as the U.S. correspondent. And I thought, oh, I'm the reporter that goes out and gets the story. But in, in, in Austria, the correspondent is essentially a PR agent. And so they flew me over to Spain and, you know, I watched their testing and we're on a private jet on the way back to Salzburg. And he's gonna, you know, give me all the information about the position. And as he starts to describe it, I said, oh, I said, you know, I think we had a communication breakdown. Correspondent for us as a reporter, correspondent for you as a PR agent. I said, I haven't done PR in years. And that's something that you need to keep your contacts up to really do effectively. I said, so I couldn't in good conscience take this, this position. I said, but I'll find you somebody. And so he's like, oh, I really thought that you would be the one. I'm like, yeah. And so we're kind of sitting there. I'm going to go to the powder room. And I walked into the bathroom and there's like, Dominic, these gold fixtures. And I was like, oh my God. I'm like, Leslie, figure it out. I was like, who does this happen to? So I walk out and I said, I said, you know, what are you guys doing with your television? And so he was like, oh, you know, we have a, a production company, but they don't really get my vision. I said, well, if I were you, I'd do this, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like throwing it all at it. And he was like, oh my God, it's as if you walked around in my brain. He's like, that's exactly what I want to have happen. I said, look, let's do this. I said, I'll take the Formula One job that you want. I said, but I also want a pilot. I want the budget to be able to create a pilot for Red Bull. And so that's what we did. So he allowed me to hire staff that supported me and in, you know, in the PR side of it. And then we also created a pilot that ended up being the design model for Red Bull Television now. And you know what? The Formula One thing ended up being phenomenal. Yeah. It ended up being phenomenal. I mean, you know, David Coulthard was, was racing at the time. He is out freaking legend and so it was it was fantastic I had a great time I learned so much about Formula One globally that when the economy went crazy in 2008 I got picked up by NASCAR to run the northeast portion of the of the country because it was a very similar business model to what Red Bull needed to have happen in the United States NASCAR needed for the northeast so it all kind of worked together I love that story, Leslie, the one of you in the jet with the, the Bond villain golden taps. I think, you know, the initiative that you show there to, you know, find yourself in a situation that you don't necessarily want that job that's being offered to you. It's maybe somewhere out of your skill set or your comfort zone. So instead of saying no, you go away, you compose yourself, you reconfigure your pitch and you go back and you pitch back at the guy 
then you end up coming away with the television channel. I think that's remarkable and a lesson to all of us. You know, don't say no straight away. Go away, think about it, see if you can repackage the request you've been given and kind of make it work for you. I'm sorry to ask this question, Leslie, but the one thing that keeps going back to my mind hearing you talk about your time in media is, you know, you must have interviewed lots of really cool people. Who was the best person you interviewed? And uh, if you feel comfortable to answer, who was the worst? I won't say the worst. <laughs> it wouldn't be somebody that you would, you'd be like, that guy was bad, horrible. <laughs> and, and not like mean or anything, but just, yeah, yeah, not cooperative, not funny. And the person was supposed to be funny. Um, Robin Williams was wonderful. He was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, and, and he literally came out in the audience and danced with me. It was just, <laughs> Oh my God. But uh, yeah, so he was really wonderful. God rest his soul. Uh, Denzel Washington was phenomenal. So just generous and present in the conversation. Um, Angelina Jolie was really, really great. So I, I was very, I was blessed to have connected with some people over the years that were just, just ace. Dale Earnhardt Jr., you know, the first time I met him, clearly I knew who he was. He was the most popular NASCAR driver after his father passed away, but he introduced himself. That's good home training. He didn't just assume that I knew him. He introduced himself. Hi, I'm Dale Jr. How are you? What's your name? Where are you from? And I was like, okay. (laughs) And so, you know, when somebody has all that fame, all that money, all that adulation, and they can still be present with you and I in this moment and be an actual person. That's that's when I feel like you're special. You've already started to unpick features of what makes somebody charismatic, magnetic, wanting to be around them. Um, And obviously reflecting on that journey where you had this amazing opportunity thrust at you from a chance meeting with the owner of Red Bull. What was it? that you think attracted him to want you to take that opportunity and to give you that opportunity? What did that person see in you? Well, you know what? It's actually the beginning of our conversation. He said, I have always believed in the vision of athletes. He said, there's something about athletes that they have the the ability to see something and see it to fruition. He said, so I believe in betting on athletes. If there's an athlete who wants to do something, when Felix Bumgartner, when he did the highest base jump ever from outer space, he had a vision to do that. And Dietrich said, I'm gonna make it happen. So we're starting to step into the realm now of the Olympic mindset, which is the title of this podcast. Leslie, reflecting on all these amazing experiences that you've had, all these amazing people that you've met, are there any principles or key themes that seem to keep coming out in this concept of an Olympic mindset for you? I, and and I disagree with you that the Olympic mindset is something that is only attainable, and you may not have expressly said this, and excuse me if you didn't, um, but only attainable by Olympians. Part of my ability to uh, attain the things that I've obtained is my physical makeup. You know, I have enough fat, fast twitch muscle fibers, my legs are long enough, blah, 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 all of that. But I am not, I'm not even the best athlete that came out of my household. Okay. <laughs> so it, it is, it is a mindset, but if you can't take that mindset and apply it to other areas of your life, 
it is also an utter waste. So if you had to sum this mindset up in in a phrase or a, a quote, what would it be? Excellence isn't an accident. It's not perfectionism. It's excellence. Each one of us can achieve excellence on a daily basis by evaluating, by honesty, compassion, and effort. Every day may not be 100%. There are some days when the best you're going to get out of me is 70%. But if I'm honest about where I am in that moment, and, and, and why is it 70%? And why is that 70% not just good enough, but is damn incredible <laughs> that that's the thing because there are times when I'm 110%. And so understanding how, how the seasons of our lives work, understanding that there are some, there are things that I'm going to do that I have a natural affinity for, things that are a really extension of who I am. And on those things, I can fire on all cylinders, but there's also going to be that 15% that I may not love. But if I can figure out how to make my effort excellent in that area for me, then it supports everything else. And so it, it starts with honesty and understanding that excellence isn't an accident. It's not gonna fall out of, head, out of the sky and hit you in the head. You are gonna have to work for it, diligently work for it, not hard work. Because I'm, I'm a linguist. I very much believe in language. And I'm not trying to speak hard over my life at any time. Diligent, for sure. For sure. But I promise you, you have the ability to achieve an Olympic level outcome in your life if you're able to look at it honestly. Does the honesty necessarily need to come from you? Or can the honesty be fed back to you from somebody else? Both. Both. You know, I was I was very, very fortunate to have people in my life who poured into me, who yeah. helped me to believe that my voice mattered, to help me to believe. I have an aunt that says, every time we got the phone, stay wonderful, baby. That's an assumption you can make about me every day of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's going to make me want to try and, and achieve that. Stay wonderful. Okay, that means, that means it assumes that I'm wonderful. Mm-hmm. That is a good thing. We can take kids and build them up so much just by virtue of the language that we speak over them. There's some amazing lessons here, Leslie, from your career in sport to your career in marketing, your career in media, your lessons as a, as a as a wife, a mother, a daughter, um, I guess my question to you is what lessons have you taken from all of those amazing experiences and how have you applied them to the setting up of your own business, Maxi Media Group? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it is the gut. It's being in touch with what is feeding me right now. And feeding me isn't always the, the food, the money. Feeding me is also the spirit. Why am I here? Why am I here? And how can the work that I'm doing be an expression of why I'm here? If I can do that, I am winning on every level. And it doesn't mean I'm winning every single day. (laughs) But what it does mean is if I'm in touch with why I'm here, 
the days when I am not feeling it, I'm able to, to actually step on that foundation and say, Leslie, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than you. So put on your big girl panties because <laughs> you got some work to do. Absolutely. And I bet you have to give yourself that little pep talk most days working with Fortune 500 companies, some of the most powerful CEOs and media moguls in the world. So my question to you would be, how do you deal with the anxiety that inevitably comes with working at that level? Those kind of traits that we've heard of recently in the media, which would be imposter syndrome, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. You know what? I I actually don't believe in imposter syndrome. And it goes back to the belief that we all have something, something that we're struggling with. That's real. There's nothing imposter about that. And so if I'm willing to be in that, to be with that, to struggle with it so that I can, I can get past it so that I can master it, then what's, what's more real about that? There are very few jobs that we do in this life that you walk into it and you're like, I got everything. Every time I hear the word imposter syndrome, I want to smack it back in somebody's mouth, (laughs) especially when I hear it coming out of a woman's mouth, because some men will walk into a situation and be like, well, I'm going to fake it till I make it. I got the job and they're going to apply for jobs that are completely on paper above what they should be doing. But you know what? When you saw your wife across the room, you were like, I'm going to talk to her (laughs) or I feel like I'm an imposter. No, you didn't. You figured it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Every time we come into a new situation, there's going to be some level of trepidation because it's new and and imposter syndrome is nothing but our ego trying to keep us from an outcome that it hasn't worked its way through already same thing with speakers when speak 75% of the world has what's called glossophobia fear of of speaking in front of audiences and and that is just your ego trying to protect you from what it doesn't know If you haven't done it, or even if you've done it before, but you haven't gotten yourself to the position where I'm going to, I'm going to bridge the gap between where I am and where I want to be. And oftentimes that's working through your ego that is trying to protect you. It's, hey, it's protected you from many different things, but it's also kept you from the life that you know you want to lead. So I guess it's that willingness to challenge yourself and to push yourself that led you to setting up your own company. Maxi Media Group is is bringing to bear all of my experience in the media world. And then I work with strategic partners based on what that particular contract is. Um, and But we're shifting now. So for the last probably three or four years, I had really been, I asked myself when I turned 50, what is the thing that I would do that I just love so much that I would do for free? Understanding that a good 85% of what I do, I freaking love. And that, that is by design. That's the commitment that I have to myself. And so what would I do that I just, it just makes my heart sing. I love working with women. I love empowering a woman to, to give voice to her vision. I have a saying, and it is when women rise, we rarely rise alone. And so when, if you can empower a woman, you are empowering several concentric circles around her because we just, we just pull, we bring people with us. And so that was something that was really important to me coming into my 50th year. So I I started a group called Not Your Mama's 50. And it is, the tagline is not better, not worse, just different. 
me and many other, we call ourselves mid-love sisters, mid-life and loving it. <laughs> and we were in this conversation. And if we would work together on what it was she needed or what it was I needed, that we could get a result that I couldn't otherwise get by myself, or it might take me much longer to try and get that result. And so that's the, the crux of the, of the group itself but it's turned into a, an anthology, a book that I'm writing. Um, and it's all interview-based. And each woman is answering one question in conversation. And, and it is, what thing did you have to answer, consider, do that your mother never had to? Not that your mother couldn't do it. It just wasn't something that was part of her consideration set. Because you know we have, this generation of women have come in contact with every opportunity under the sun. We're astronauts, we're vice presidents, we run industry, we're technology, we're report, we're, you name it, we've done it. And when much is given, much is required. And so what things have we had to deal with that our mothers just never had to consider? It's a very interesting conversation. <laughs> there are a couple of things um, happening. They'll be able to buy the book this time next year. And, and I will, I'll make sure that you get that information so that you can share it with your audience, because I would love for them to be a part of the conversation. And there's some really inspirational stuff you're doing there in those women's groups. So thank you for sharing that with us. And any of our guests that would like to get in touch, please do reach out on Facebook. And I'm sure Leslie will welcome you to her group with open arms. I just wanted to ask you, Leslie, you're attributed to a quote, which is lose to win. Would you mind very quickly explaining to me what you mean by the concept of lose to win? Yeah, sometimes you you get to lose to win. Sometimes you get to see what you thought was the main thing was really not the main thing. Oftentimes we go after something and it turns out that it's about something else altogether. And, and that, that can be a beautiful thing. Yeah, that sounds to me like gold medal syndrome, whereby you win a gold medal and then you suffer with a kind of bout of depression afterwards where you get the anticlimax at the end of it. Leslie, if you could go back and start all over again, what three pieces of advice would you give to a young Leslie Maxi? Three pieces of advice. Um, follow your gut. Even when it feels like it is counterintuitive, follow your gut, follow your gut, follow your gut. <laughs> yeah, that could be actually my three pieces of information. Um, follow through and be willing to hold the great idea until the time is right. That's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> and it might take alcohol. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Les Leslie, it's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you for so much for coming on the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Um, it's been fascinating to talk to you. And if I do cross paths with Lynn for Christie, I'll be sure to tell him Leslie is said to do it. He won't remember. <laughs> <laughs> sure he will. <laughs> joining me Dominic Broad at the Olympic Mindset Podcast brought to you by NAHT the school leaders union now there will be a short break between seasons however if you've signed up for our newsletter at the olympicmindsetpodcast.com you'll get lots of free content from our great friends who are qualified sports psychologists they've been unpicking the common themes in each of our interviews and writing some great advice for how you can apply the Olympic mindset to your own lives. Now, don't forget to come back and join us for season two. We have some unbelievable guests. And this time we start to explore lessons from outside of the world of sport.
Thanks for listening to the Olympic Mindset Podcast. As you know, at the end of every episode, we offer a platform to a charity doing amazing work. This week, we are joined by our Charity of the Week, and the person that we're speaking to is Susan Kramer-Mills, the Executive Director of Town Clock Community Development Corp, based in New Jersey, America. Hi, Susan. How are you? Great to be here. How are you? Awesome. Thank you very much for joining me. So you're our first stateside charity to join us for our Charity of the Week. How does that feel? Very special. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good answer. So obviously the lovely Leslie Maxey put us in touch and this is actually part of her episode. So, you know, thank you to Leslie Maxey for putting us in touch. Yes, I love Leslie. She's a, a wonderful, adored supporter and inspirer, actually, for many Absolutely. I hope our listeners feel as inspired as you, and I obviously feel speaking to her too. So, Susan, talk to us a little about your role. What do you do at the organization? I am the executive director uh, for Town Clock Community Development Corporation. Um, I've been in this role for... Uh, Oh, maybe about eight years. Um, I was one of the founders uh, when the church that I was serving as the pastor uh, decided to develop a um, develop its property in a new way. And uh, in that I sat on the committee, the church committee that actually did something. And um, we put plans into place and re, um, redeveloped uh, the interior of the sanctuary. Wow. So tell me, Susan, what exactly does Town Clock Community Development Corp do in the local area? So we, um, with that project, we um, put in 10 apartments for permanent, affordable, supportive housing for survivors of domestic violence and their children. Um, and that's that's a long story. It's a part of a history of the church. Um, they helped a woman back in 1971 and uh, who was being abused by her boyfriend. And then he broke into the backside of the church and set fire to the interior of the sanctuary. And with that fire, um, half of the church was destroyed. Um, it's a historic church, historic for here for the United States. It's 200 years old. You know, I know that doesn't sound like much for, for hmm. jolly old England, but it is for us. Um, and um, even so the interior was destroyed, but what that enabled us to actually rebuild inside and put in permanent affordable supportive housing. Amazing. That's fantastic work. It's lovely to hear that you're doing that as well. So, Susan, do you have any exciting plans for the charity going forward? Is there anything on the horizon that we should keep an ear out for? So there's desperate need. Um, What Town Clock does is we help uh, provide all the wraparound services and programming for the residents. Um, We've done one expansion on the very same property that we are existing on. Our plans are to develop a third uh, building that's on this very property and create then also a, um, a welcome center, a nutrition center, and expand our food and clothing pantries. We also have a very big event that always comes every October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month in the United States. Um, on October 27th, we will be um, doing our Being Brave event. That's our main fundraiser. We honor three local uh, honoree groups that help 
uh, support Town Clock or other survivors of domestic violence in their own way. So, Lovely, that's fantastic. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, Susan, to seek support or to offer help to the charity, how would they do so? Uh, we have a website, uh, townclockcdc.org. Um, we, you can also find us on Facebook, Town Clock CD, uh, Community Development Corporation. Um, we love to hear from people. Um, people reach out to us and ask how they can volunteer. There's also on our website, huge explanation of who we are, what we're doing, and um, how they can donate or purchase tickets for our events. Lovely. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you very much.